Let us pray. Gracious God, as we consider your word this afternoon, we express gratitude for it. And we know that as you have promised, there is sure to be a word for us there from your Holy Spirit. Uh, You ordained to speak through your word, and so we pray that as I try to open up your word this afternoon, that it would be your spirit that speaks to uh, each one of us. Encourage us, convict us, uh, have your way with us, we pray. And be with me now as I share in Jesus' name. Amen. You have, in addition to a four-page handout, a single uh, sheet that came out a little differently than I'd intended. Those of you who are getting older are going to have some eye strain, but there is an outline there. And I trust it made it, to, uh, it made it to you, him, for the people on Zoom. Thank you. That's great. So we continue our series on the book of Psalms. And the title for the sermon today is taken from two lines of the Lord's Prayer. Deliver us from the evil one, which is an alternate understanding of... Um, Uh, deliver us from evil. It's possible that that uh, refers to an evil one. And then, thy kingdom come. And as I thought of this uh, sermon title, which matches really the message of Psalm 144, Psalm 111, deliver us from the evil one, as spoken by the figure who is ultimately the Messiah in the Psalms, and thy kingdom come, verses 12 to 15, I was reminded that it was the practice of the great reformer, Martin Luther, the uh, father of the Protestant Reformation, he loved to assign to each of the Psalms a line from the Lord's Prayer and also a line from the Ten Commandments. And I'm not sure that he sustained it all through his Psalter uh, commentaries, but he began that way. And if there was a line from the Ten Commandments that would be paired with these two lines from the Lord's Prayer, um, I think it should be, um, um, you shall worship no other god but me. Um, because the Messiah's focus in Psalm 145, the partner to this psalm, is all about God. And David, in effect, and I know I'm jumping ahead of things here, is uh, teaching us to praise. Well, we continue our series on the psalms, focusing on the structure of the book and how, according to many recent interpreters, it points to a Messiah whose identity and ministry echo that of Jesus. And today we look at Psalm 144 with an eye to how Psalm 144 can be understood to be the words of the Messiah, who is none other than Jesus. I'm not saying that Jesus somehow jumped into the book of Psalms and that a human didn't say it, but what I am saying is that the psalmist who wrote the psalm um, um, echoed the the, the sentiment of uh, the Messiah And we can read Psalm 144 meaningfully and truthfully as though it comes from the Messiah. Let me provide a link with the children's talk. Originally, Psalm 144 was like a dinner plate. It was written by an historic figure who had no consciousness necessarily of the Messiah. But the psalm took on a later incarnation, later in the book of Psalms, and became kind of the Frisbee variation as it were. So this psalm, as we will soon see, 
uh, is related to Psalm 18. And we're going to trace the evolution of that Psalm, of Psalm 144, and see how it comes ultimately to pertain to Jesus Christ. But at that point, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. And I'm still at the top and want to now embark upon an excursus. Um, in my previous incarnation, I was uh, a professor of the Old Testament here at Wycliffe College. And I trained to study the Old Testament because um, I understood it to be the Word of God and I uh, believed in the Messianic Psalms. And during the 1970s when I began my study, uh, the scholar professors that I was studying under um, at a uh, university in Scotland made it very clear to me that um, if I thought that Jesus had anything to do with anything in the book of Psalms, I was uh, a naive, acronistic nutcase. And um, uh, my faith was kind of taken away from me, as it were, and I wasn't allowed even to see in Psalm 2 anything having to do with the Messiah. No, this is a coronation hymn of an ancient Judean king, and it was all about the dinner plate. This is an old, broken dinner plate, as it were. Um, and at the time, I knew better, but I couldn't really explain why I thought differently. And since about 1979, um, Old Testament scholars, not just of evangelical conviction, but Old Testament scholars um, of every conviction, have come to see that the book of Psalms as a whole was edited. It was put together in order to constitute an argument. And scholars are still debating about what that argument ultimately is, but I put myself in a category, which is becoming a majority, that says that the book of Psalms talks about a son of David who was originally a human figure, um, who sinned against God and whose kingship got into trouble. And around Psalm 89, um, he died uh, or came close to death, and that seemed to be the end of Davidic kingship. And of course, for Israel's history, much of it, there was no king in Israel. When the book of Psalms was put together, there was no king in Israel. But the people who put the book of Psalms together were led by the Spirit to continue to affirm that another David was coming, a Messiah. And Jewish people to this day are still looking for a Messiah. And you can't read the New Testament without knowing that the Jews are expecting a Messiah figure to come. We don't have a king now. Uh, the king is Caesar, unfortunately. He's a foreign ruler and we don't like him, but we believe, say they, that one day a messianic figure will come. Well, friends, it's just a delight and... Uh, it's just like, kind of like this, I just pinch myself at times to be reading commentaries on the Psalms where people now affirm that this messianic figure is rife through the book of Psalms. And so uh, as we go through this series, I'm kind of indulging myself as well as hopefully um, saying things that are edifying to us from the word of God together week by week. But as I do so, I just revel in the way in which Jesus is foreshadowed in the Psalms. And today I want to say a little bit about how Jesus is foreshadowed or how Jesus' ministry is echoed in Psalm 144. Now that's a little piece about me. There's another piece about the rest of us. I don't know whether you noticed um, that one of the characters on the series Friends died this week. A uh, young man, not a young man, I guess he was 56 years of age. And I was reading in um, uh, an editorial today that talked about I can't remember which uh, newspaper it was from. I think it might have been the Washington Post that talked about the demons that this man had. Here was a Canadian man whose mother was uh, a beautiful actress. He went to school with Justin Trudeau. 
Um, his father was very famous, but from the time he was a youth, he was troubled. He was looking for meaning in life, and he wanted to be famous, and he wanted to be loved. Lo and behold, he goes to Los Angeles. He uh, audits for a position on Friends, one of the most popular sitcom series around. He earns $1.1 million a program. That's a little more than they pay me here at Christ the King for his sermon on a week. Um, but he uh, continued to be unhappy. He was addicted to opioids. He was addicted to alcohol. And this week, the chickens came home to roost, and uh, the young man died. His colon exploded. He underwent emergency surgery. He was in a coma, having survived the surgery, which no one expected him to do. And now he lies in a grave. A man who was looking for meaning in life and who had it all. He had fame. He had money. I mean, he dumped... Um, I often, <laughs> uh, a very famous actress with a, with a, with a um, one of the actresses that, you know, young men would dream of dating, he, he dumped her, and uh, he, because he was afraid that she wouldn't love him, and she thought that he better dump her before she dumped him, because he was spending his life looking for love. What does this have to do with anything? My friends, there's never a time like we're experiencing today, where People have it all, but they feel empty and feel meaningless. They have a hole inside of their heart that money can't fill, that fame can't fill, that a good friendship can't fill, that Hollywood can't fill, and people are looking for the real deal. And in the Psalms, there is a real deal foreshadowing of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who came, and Jesus saw it. I mean, think of it, it has taken Old Testament scholars 2,000 years <laughs> to figure out what Jesus saw in the Psalms. And really only now are we beginning to understand that he wasn't just picking at straws, but he was actually reading the Psalms with great intelligence and with great vigor. This is the real deal, my friends, and if you get nothing else out of the sermon today or week by week, please know that Jesus... The Son of God loves you, and He wants to have a relationship with you, and you can have that relationship with Him by faith. It won't solve all your problems, but it'll take away your sins, and it'll give you a peace so that you know that come what may, there's someone there who loves you, and that void can be filled only through Jesus Christ. Let's do a little review. We have a five-book structure to the book of Psalms, like the five books of Moses. 1 to 41, 42 to 72, 73 to 89, 90 to 106, 107 to 150. And then um, we are at the end of the book of Psalms. And the message of the book of Psalms is about the kingship of God and about how there was a crisis that um, the son of David went through, whereby it seemed as though his time was over. But then the hope in a Davidic Messiah, particularly in the fourth and the fifth books, now 90 to 150, is revived. In other words, in effect, the Messiah has been resurrected, and he now has uh, a ministry on par with that of God. The Messiah is the king, God is the king. And we saw last week in Psalm 149 that we, his followers, whom I called the godly covenanters, share in that ministry, which indeed Jesus invited us to share with him when he gave the Great Commission. So the book of Psalms ends uh, with uh, the last of five collections attributed to David. So we have Psalm 146 to 50, five psalms that take us out on the end of the book of Psalms with this glorious 
Praise the Lord, uh, which points to our destiny in the new heaven and the new earth. And prior to that hallelujah, there are eight Psalms, Psalms 138 to 45, that are authored by King David. And the sequencing of those Psalms tells us something about the ministry of this David. And this is not the historical David, but now this is a David who has taken on um, a new life. He's the, he's the ultimate David, the one that Israel and the one that the Jewish people are still looking for today. And I wonder, as I continue to do this study in the Psalms, what my Jewish friends would think if they knew what scholars were seeing in the book of Psalms. Uh, many of them are involved in rabbinic studies and other things, but I just cannot help but think, gosh, maybe there's going to be a reawakening where people, Jewish people, will affirm the messianic identity of Jesus Christ as they see it in their Bibles. That's something to hope and pray for. So we're moving along, and I just want to say something about the Davidic collection. We're going to look at that next week, how David relates to the Psalms. Roger already took us through a wonderful sermon about a month ago where he tied the book of Psalms to the story of um, David and Samuel. We're going to do that again next week. But uh, for now, we're looking at this last Davidic collection, Psalm 138 to 45, and we're focusing on Psalms 144 to 50. So when we look at Psalm 144 today, I want us to look at it in terms of its development from um, its early life, the dinner plate version, perfectly respectable, wonderful, inspired dinner plate, to its now kind of um, flying across the surface of history, Messiah incarnation, awaiting fulfillment which it found in Jesus Christ. If you were to look at Psalm 144 more carefully, particularly the first 11 verses, and compare it to Psalm 18, you would notice that there is a, a remarkable correspondence. Psalm 144 is uh, a reworking of Psalm 18. So what I want to do in the few minutes that we have, um, for the most part of the few minutes that we have today, is to look at the Psalm 18 version and then to trace its trajectory to the point where it now points to the Messiah. Well, in Psalm 18... There was uh, a psalm written by um, an historical son of David, and he knew that God had promised him a blessing and an eternal dynasty. And so he says, very much the same thing we read in our psalm, Blessed be Yahweh my rock who instructs my hands for war, my fingers for battle, my loyal ally and my fortress, my stronghold, my very own deliverer, my shield in whom I take refuge. And then it goes on. Then when it comes to verses 5 following, uh, this too echoes Psalm 18. But in verse 5 following, in the Psalm 18 version, it is not a prayer. It is, um, these words are used as a way of thanking God for who he is. So, God, you are great. Uh, you bent the heavens. You laid hold of the mountains so that they smoked. Lightning flashed, and you came and you rescued me. But now, in Psalm 144, we picture this new Messiah who sees an enemy ahead. And now he turned what was the affirmation in Psalm 18 into a series of petitions where he's crying out for help. And he's asking God to intervene because a formidable enemy is on the horizon. And my friends, what I'm alluding to, to jump ahead just so you know where I'm going is to the ministry of Jesus when he faces temptation in the wilderness. 
to the ministry of Jesus when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, saying, Pat, let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless, not my will be done, but thine be done. As he faces the cross, and as he overcomes that huge challenge and brings blessing, which we find at the end of the psalm. So in its original phase, it looked probably pretty much like Psalm 18. And in some ways, Psalm 18 is the grandfather of this text. And it related to an historical David who lived, who sinned, and who died. Psalm 18 then made a jump into the book of Samuel. And now, um, through that jump into the book of Samuel, it's in 2 Samuel 22, where it ends uh, much of the historical account of King David. And it now comes before 2 Samuel 23. This is getting a bit thick. I'm aware of that. <laughs> pray for me. Uh, pray for yourselves. Uh, where, where, where are we going with this? What I'm saying is that when the book of Psalms, the book of Psalms at a certain point kind of threw a rope over to the book of Samuel, and uh, the boat of the book of Psalms and the boat of Samuel got together so that now the book of Psalms can be read as kind of a spiritual biography of David. Uh, if you ever wondered what David was thinking about when he was in the cave, well, read the psalm that Roger pointed us to a couple of weeks ago. Um, and Psalm 18 finds its way into the book of Samuel and says, yes, if you want to know about the spiritual biography of David, read the book of Psalms. We're in tandem here. We've got the narrative rendition in Samuel, and we've got the poetic rendition in Psalms. But what's interesting is that when Psalm 18 finds its way into 2 Samuel 22 to conclude the book of 2 Samuel, it is preceded by 2 Samuel chapter 23. And I want to just mention 2 Samuel chapter 23 because here is the point at which the psalm jumps back and takes on um, a superhuman messianic character. In 2 Samuel chapter 23, right after this version of the psalm is read in a variant, David describes himself not as a singer of songs, but as a prophet, somebody whose songs are also prophecies. And so David says in 2 Samuel 23, now these are the last words of David. The oracle of David. Now an oracle is somebody that, something that a prophet gets. And so here David has an oracle. The oracle of David the son of Jesse. The oracle of the man who was raised on high. This is part of the language of Psalm 144. The anointed of the God of Jacob. The sweet psalmist of Israel. So the writer of the Psalms is not just the writer of a hymn book, but he's a prophesier of prophets. And then David says, the spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The rock of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloud, less morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. And then you'll notice as it comes to, well, I'll just keep reading. It's another two verses. But does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For he will not cause to prosper all my wealth and my desire. But worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away. They cannot be taken with a hand. But the man who touches them arms himself 
with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. So here we have testimony from the book of Samuel that takes us back to the Psalms. And the author and editor of the Psalms was familiar with Samuel. So now in Psalm 144, as we come to the end of the book of Psalms, we read a Psalm by David in which the messianic figure is now saying the same things that David did, but as he faces a new enemy, somebody who's going to be deceptive, somebody who is going to deceive himself and the people, he asks God to intervene. Oh, Yahweh, bend down the sky and descend. Lay hold of the mountains so that they will smoke. Flash lightning, I'm reading verse 6, and disperse them. Issue your arrows and write them. Issue your hands from on eye. Rescue me and deliver me from the great waters from the hand of foreigners, whose mouths speak a lie and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. That is mentioned twice in this psalm. So the theme of the psalm is that the Messiah is facing a new enemy and he's asking for help. He's facing a cosmic enemy and he's invoking God's promise to David. And he's asking, Lord, please help me. You give victory to kings. You rescue David. You rescue his servant from the sword of wickedness. And then we're not told, but whereupon, it seems, between verses 11 and 12, the, song, the, the Messiah's prayer is answered. And so we know it was. When Jesus depended upon the strength from the Lord when he faced an enemy, namely Satan in his temptation in the wilderness, God prevailed. Jesus was victorious over this cosmic enemy. And he went on to fulfill his ministry as the Messiah who died for our sins on the cross. When Jesus was in the garden facing the forces of hell, he prayed in the garden, and he asked for God to intervene, to give him strength to endure the cross. And so he did. Well, that's a little history on Psalm 18 and where it's gone. And in its later phase, in the form of Psalm 144, it relates to the future Messiah. But Psalm 144 has a little appendix on it, and that's where we come to not uh, deliver us from the evil one, but thy kingdom come. All of a sudden in verse 12, there is a part of the psalm that doesn't seem like it belongs, where um, the Messiah pictures sons in their youth to be like saplings fully grown, daughters to be like corner pillars in the temple, just fashioned in order to echo the temple, a picture of the relationship, I believe, between Christ as his bride and the church. May our stoner houses be full, providing produce upon produce. May our flocks increase by thousands, even myriads in our outlying areas. May our cattle be heavy. May there be no breach, sortie, and no wailing in the streets. My friends, there's a picture here of the victory that the Messiah accomplished when he overcame that ultimate enemy. And it's an experience that I wish for that dear gent who died, who was a star uh, of friends. He did not experience the peace that passes understanding that comes with knowing the Messiah. And if you are here this afternoon and you're wondering about the meaning of life and you're pursuing a career, fame, money, anything else, I am here to tell you, you won't find it in those worldly things. It's part of the lie that Satan continues to promulgate, which is echoed in this psalm. There is someone who's deceiving you, who wants you to believe that it's all somewhere else, and Jesus, in effect, is praying for himself and is praying for you, saying, I hope that you might find 
real peace which comes only through me. You know, and as I look at verses 12 to 15, originally they were uh, the fulfillment of God's promise of blessing to the people when they finally entered the promised land. And as I read verses 12 to 15, I kind of find myself between two worlds. I say, Lord, I can feel it. I feel at peace in my heart. I feel that you have provided much. I have much joy in my life, but there's yet much to come. And of course, that comes at the end. My friends, where does this all end? I've suggested that it's echoed in the temptation of Jesus where he overcame the enemy. It's echoed in the prayer of Jesus in the garden when again he overcame the enemy. And it's echoed in the struggle that the church has against Satan and against the Antichrist. And it will only end after, as we read in Revelation 19, when Jesus comes again to defeat his enemies. And it's not a pretty picture. We all want justice in the world, but we rarely think what that's going to look like in terms of what has to be put to right and who is going to be um, set aside in order for rightness to come. And then in Revelation chapter 21, uh, we have um, the picture of the new heaven and the new earth. This sermon is mostly about Jesus, which is what most sermons should be. We want sermons more about us, tell me how to live my life, and I'm saying this is a psalm where Jesus has prayed, his prayer was answered, and he brought blessing through his death on the cross, and more blessing is to come when he comes again, and we are partners with him. Let me conclude with one little observation which takes us to Psalm 145, and this takes us back to the structure of the psalms, and with that we'll finish. I included on our little handout there, how Psalm 145 follows. Psalm 145 begins with the title, A Praise Song Concerning David. And here the Holy Spirit has edited this, five, this eight psalm collection having to do with David with the five collection of praises by saying, who's going to introduce us to that concluding praise with which we end the book? I can think of none other than, my, than the Messiah, than David. And so here in Psalm 145, which I have, um, which you'll just have to look in your, um, in your Bibles to read, but it's, it's a psalm of praise. And there Jesus is the one who takes us to the point of giving praise. He is the reason for our praise. He's the one who teaches us how to praise. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus taught us how to pray. And he taught us to pray, deliver us from the evil one. And he taught us also to pray, thy kingdom come. In answer to the disciples' question, Lord, teach us to pray. In Psalm 145, it's as though we also said as his disciples, Lord, teach us to praise. And the Messiah teaches us just how to do that in Psalm 145. And that sets the stage for all of the praises that all of God's people can summon. Jesus is the savior of the world. He's defeated the enemy. And he wants to bring peace and blessing in your life. Don't believe the lie. Put your trust in him today. He has been foreshadowed in the Psalms in a remarkable way. In a way that no human could ever invent or devise. Will you give your life to him today? Will you offer praise to him as Jesus teaches us to pray and to praise? God being our helper, may it be so. Amen.